Well, good evening. Good evening. What's that? I skipped good morning. I made it right to good evening. Hopefully that lasts. It's good to be here. For those of you who might not know me, my name is Jonathan. I am another one of the pastors here at Central. I am the Promontory Campus pastor, so about as far away as you can get from here, at least in terms of Central campuses. And it is, it's a delight to be here. It's always a joy to be able to come. I've been looking forward to this moment when I could actually drive all the way here and it was still light and beautiful. So that was awesome to be able to drive over over the mountains and just enjoy all of God's creation around here. Well, as I was driving here, uh, thankfully it didn't happen this time, but it certainly has in the past, and maybe it has to you as well, but you've been driving behind someone and suddenly they're going super slowly. And you're thinking, what on earth is going? And all of a sudden they just speed up and then they slow right back down. They speed up and they slow back down. And finally you get around them and you look to the side and you see them them doing this as as they're trying to drive. And they're trying to text at the very same time as driving. I, this, this bugs me, and so I was doing a little bit of research on that, and I found out now, or at least last year, I think it was 25% of all accidents were caused by cell phones, people on their phones trying to do something else while driving. And so as I was on this sort of rabbit trail down uh, through the internet, I came across one of these videos, and it was an experiment. I, I think it was somewhere between a science experiment and a prank. I'm not exactly sure where, but they, they were doing this little experiment and they were trying to figure out, you know, if people can actually do this. And so over in Finland, they they grabbed a group of people and uh, they brought them to this driving academy, this closed off course, and they told them, uh, the government is about to change the laws. The government is about to change the laws where it's been illegal to text and drive. Now it's going to be legal. And so what's going to happen is everyone needs to be retested and to get your driver's license, you have to prove that you can text and drive at the same time, right? So you'd have to go through this whole driving obstacle course while texting the entire time and continue on a conversation. And so they they brought a whole bunch of people and they convinced them that this was going to happen and so you need to practice and, and here you go. And so it went about as well as you might think it would. It was horrible. People were driving either super slowly or they were running over these cones that were supposed to be children on the side of the road. And finally, by the end of it, they were all just completely frustrated and said, I can't do both. And the video ended with, we agree. We don't think so either. Right? And so it it was all just kind of a a prank on them. But the message of the video is pretty simple. If you're trying to do both of these things, you don't have enough attention to split for both of them. They, They require all of your attention. Right? But here's the thing. I think most of us are are kind of aware of that. Yeah, you shouldn't text and drive. And yet, I think we're often tempted to do it, aren't we? We're tempted every once in a while, the phone will, will buzz and we'll think to ourselves, you know, I, I bet I could just do it really quickly. I, I bet I could just get, make this call. I bet I could just quickly text back a reply. Maybe I'm just sitting at the, at the stoplight or whatever it is. And I bet I could just squeak it through, right? We, we know that we probably shouldn't. We probably know we can't. And yet we're still tempted to try and usually to our detriment. Usually there's damage that can ensue. Well, the same thing is true of our spiritual lives. Right? We, we try and focus on two different things at the same time. We try and, and split our focus and take our uh, attention away from where it should be. And the problem is we end up damaging both. 
it's a danger we know exists, and yet we're sometimes still tempted to give it a try. Well, this evening we're going to be t- picking up and continuing on and actually finishing our series in the book of Revelation, looking at these seven letters to these seven churches, and we're going to look at a church that was trying to divide its attention, that was trying to pay attention to more than one thing, and we're going to look at what happens when they do. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse uh, 14 this evening. And uh, we're going to be reading this final letter to the church in Laodicea. So this is what Jesus has to say to the church. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see." Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's as far as we're going to read. Would you just join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we we pray this evening, Lord, would you be with us as we read your word? Uh, Father, I I pray, would you give us the the focus, the attention to be able to pay uh, careful uh, attention to what you have written to us? Lord, I I pray even at the end uh, of a long day, would you give us just the ability to hear what you have written, that we would not hear these simply as, as rules, as things we have to do, but really, Lord, as life in you. Father, I pray, would you give us open hearts to hear what you have to say, open ears that we might pay attention to your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are looking at this final letter to the church in Laodicea, but, but actually, this letter is actually quite unique amongst all of the other seven. This is the only letter where Jesus has nothing good to say about them. It's not exactly the, the, the nicest of introductions to these letters, but, but Jesus has no commendation. He has nothing that he is going to praise them for. Even, even Sardis, if you remember a couple weeks ago, there was this church in Sardis. They were doing bad. Even Jesus said, yeah, but you have a few who are doing well. Here in Laodicea, it's just all things they need to work on. But but actually in that, in this text, we find actually a great hope. And so in one sense, we're coming across this text, and it's more like we we have arrived at the scene of a car accident, right? They have divided up their attention. They're trying to text and drive at the same time, and we are arriving at the scene of the crash, and we get to arrive kind of as a police officer going, what just happened here, and how can I actually avoid it? 
All right, so that's kind of how I want us to approach this text and say, well, I don't want to be making the same mistakes that they did, so, so what exactly was going on and how can we avoid it, right? This was a church that was obsessed with all of their material possessions, everything they could gain, and they had become satisfied with that. And so Jesus comes to this church and he says, zealously seek after spiritual wealth. Repent and hear what Jesus has done. So that's what I want us to see this evening as we look at our text. It starts off with this call to seek after spiritual wealth. Look back with me at at verse 14. Verse 14 is this greeting that Jesus has for the church. It says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. As we've gone through this series, I hope that you have been noticing these little introductions that Jesus gives. They're all different, and in fact, they're all really pointed to what Jesus is about to say to the church. So Jesus introduces himself, and he says, I am the the amen, kind of a a weird way to introduce yourself, but really, amen just means truly, right? So if you can think back to John's gospel, Jesus would often begin some of his teaching by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Literally, it's just, amen, amen, I say to you, right? It's why we end our prayers with amen. It's, it's truly, may this be true. It's a statement of affirmation of what has been said. And so Jesus is saying, I am the one who is true, this, and then he goes on, true and faithful witness, or other way around, faithful and true witness, Right? His assessment of this church is going to be correct. He says he is the beginning of God's creation. Not only the one who speaks truly, but he is the one who created all things. Right? John 1 begins with this, this beautiful opening paragraph in which it says Jesus is the one who created all things and nothing has been made except what Jesus has made. He is the beginning point of all of creation. Everything points back to him. Now, I've said all of this is, it has to do with what Jesus is going to write, so just kind of hold that in your mind for a moment. We'll come back to that description. So verse 15, Jesus addresses this church, and he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Right? Jesus does not pull his punches. In fact, it's, it's a fairly visceral image, isn't it? Literally, it's, it's, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is disgusting. I don't want it. Right? Jesus was very clear in, in how he was describing this church. He's using this, this image of drinking water. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold. And I think sometimes we, we get ourselves a little confused here. Right, because sometimes we'll look at this passage and we'll say, okay, like Jesus is looking for people who are gonna be on fire for him. Yes, all right, hot, right, he wants that. Or he's looking for people who are cold, who want nothing to do with Jesus as far away as possible. Jesus is happiest when we either love him or hate him. It's the problem is the people in the middle. Well, I, I think that's, I actually don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. In fact, I don't think that's even how the church in Laodicea would have understood what Jesus was saying. See, I hope you've also noticed as we've gone through this series that a lot of these letters are very specific to their cities, 
right? That Jesus is addressing specific things, and so Laodicea sat right in the middle of two other very important cities. One was called Herapolis, the other was called Colossae, right? We have the letter to Colossians to that church. And over there in Herapolis, there was, uh, there was something very famous, it was hot springs. Everyone knew this city because you would go there and you would sit in the hot springs and it'd be warm and it would help your body and it would comfort you and you'd feel better afterwards, right? That was a beautiful thing. On the other side, there's Colossae. And over there, they actually had cool water. They actually had cold water, which, which might not sound very interesting to us who live here in Canada and our water is always cold and freezing, but in Turkey, where this is happening, right? That was a rare thing. To have a cold glass of water on a hot day was something most people didn't have. There's no refrigeration, so you don't have ice cubes in your glass. Like, all of that didn't happen. So over here, you have this city known for their cold, refreshing water. And over here, you have this city known for its warm, healing baths. And right in the middle is Laodicea. And they have the water that flows down, and it's it has cooled down, and they have the water over here that has warmed up, and in the middle is them, lukewarm and disgusting. No one wanted this tepid water that they had. Jesus says, that's what it's like. Your faith is neither comforting and supportive to anyone, nor is it cool and refreshing to anyone who comes to you. Rather, it is just tepid water, and I want nothing to do with it. And the worst part is, they didn't even recognize it. If I go on verse, verse 19, or verse 17, sorry. Verse 17, Jesus gives them this other picture. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus uses another illustration they would have immediately recognized. See, the city of Laodicea was, was wealthy, like, like really wealthy. They were well off, they were industrious. And so around 61 AD, there was this massive earthquake. It destroyed tons of cities all throughout the region and one of them that got destroyed was Laodicea. They, their buildings fell down and all kinds of stuff. And so the Roman government comes in and says, all right, we're gonna help you guys. We're gonna make sure you have enough money to rebuild and all this stuff. And Laodicea goes, we're good. Don't need your help, go away. We have enough. We've got enough money. We've got enough manpower. We can fix this up. And they did. They rebuilt their city just by themselves, by their own reserves, by their money, by their industry. They rebuilt themselves. They needed no one's help. And here's the problem. The church had begun to look like that city. The church didn't want, didn't need anyone's help. They believed they were rich. They had everything together. They had all that they could have wanted. They were self-made Christians, and I don't need your help, thank you very much. I said the way Jesus introduced himself was important to what he was gonna say. See, here's the point. This church thought that they were self-made, that they had enough industry to, to pull themselves up and to get things done. Jesus comes and says, do you realize I am the source and the beginning of all of creation? 
That means your skills, your abilities, your mind, your homes, your bodies, your strengths, everything you have, your opportunities and your jobs and everything you have, that is all from me. Down to the very air you breathe, that was my gift to you. There is no self-made man. It was all given by God. In fact, the only one who can say that is God himself. Psalm uh, 50 says this about God. He says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God owns everything. It's all owned by God. And this church had misunderstood. They thought it was their own wealth, their own ability to be able to build themselves up, and they didn't realize all of this was a gift of God. See, Jesus tells them, actually, you guys have missed the point here. You guys thought you were rich. You thought you were self-sufficient. But instead, actually, when you look at it, you are poor, blind, pitiable, wretched sinners, naked and in desperate need. In fact, it's the exact opposite to what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. If you remember that, the church in Smyrna, they were very poor. And Jesus comes to them and says, though you are poor, yet you are rich. To this church, he says, you think you are rich, but in fact, you are poor. See, they had focused on the wrong thing. They had focused on what they could achieve in their own merits, in their own strength. I can do this. And it had blinded them to what they actually needed. If we're looking at this as a car crash, here was the danger. They had put their focus on the wrong thing, and it had caused an accident. It had caused a crash. And the truth is, we can make that same mistake, too. We can think, you know what, I can do this spiritual life by myself. I don't need anyone's help. I'm pretty good. I can can read my Bible. I can pray. I can do it all by myself. I don't need anyone to help me through this. I don't need anyone to be accountable to. I can see my own life. I know what needs to be worked on, and I can do it by myself. I don't need to be a part of a church. It's what I can do. We are not called to be self-made Christians. In fact, that's a contradiction of terms. To be a Christian means that we recognize the fact that we can't do it on our own, that we need the help of others. We need people to point things out. We need people to help and support and encourage us. We can't do it. We need people to speak into our lives, to hold us accountable, who can say to us, actually, you've been focused on the wrong thing. You've missed the point. So let me ask the question, are we trying to do this all by ourselves? Do do we think that we're, we're rich because I can make sure I can take care of everything in my life? If I can be really practical, it's part of the reason why we have life groups here at Central. I know you guys have been talking about life groups and things like that. It's not just a group of Christians kind of hanging out together, enjoying some, some time or whatever. Actually, it's a group of Christians who are coming together because we realize we are not self-made Christians, that we actually need one another to continue to grow and to focus us on Jesus. We need people around us to help us, and we need Jesus to help us. Look back at verse 18. 
What does Jesus say to this church? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, white garments so you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, Jesus is just using all of these illustrations from their city. They were a rich city. They had textile industry in their city. They made clothing. They had a medical college. They made these eye creams and all of this stuff. And Jesus is just pulling all of that and saying, it's not found in your markets. It's actually found in me. Buy from me true spiritual wealth and well-being. Right? This isn't a come to Jesus and, and you're going to be healthy and wealthy kind of message. No, that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying we need to come and shell out a whole bunch of money for what he has. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. I, I think Isaiah 55 is, is kind of along the same lines. It says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. See, I think this is what Jesus has in mind for this church. It's a call to say, don't focus on, on what you can actually buy. Why are you spending your, your life on what will not last? Spend your life on what is of eternal value. See, this church had so focused on the outward. They had focused on what they could do that they had missed what was truly valuable. Paul says the same thing in uh, 1 Timothy. He says, as for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life." Paul says the same thing that Jesus does. Don't focus on what your money can get you now. Focus on what you can gain for eternity. So I think as we stand before this church in front of this car crash, we have to wrestle with this question, not, not for them, but actually for us. Where have we placed our focus? Where have we placed the things that we are striving after? We are proud Canadians, wealthy we are self-made individuals. In fact, if we are not careful, that will define our church as well. If we think that we can just simply pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, I can make this church go because of what I can do, we have missed the point. We have no money to buy what we truly need. Yet we are called to come and buy that which is truly, uh, true spiritual wealth. We can be spiritually blind and focus on what will not last. Instead, let us center ourselves on Jesus and what we need from him. We need Jesus more than we need our next meal, more than we need our next breath. We need Jesus. Because the truth is, if at the end of all of our breaths, if we don't have Jesus, we've missed what is truly valuable. 
So let us seek after true spiritual wealth and let us be zealous about it. Look back at verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I I love this verse. Right, in this letter where, where Jesus has nothing good to say about this church, he has no positive comment, he, he sprinkles this in, that those whom he disciplines, those whom he reproves, rebukes, those that he calls out are the ones that he loves. See, the reason Jesus is writing this letter is because he loves them. Yeah, they're messed up. They are a car crash across the road, but Jesus is writing to them because he still loves them. I don't know where you are with God right now, but hear me, hear me. If you are feeling that that tug back to God, that, that conviction of your sin, that is a good thing. It means God is not done with you. It means God is not hiding away from you. God disciplines, he rebukes, reproves those whom he loves. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For they, that is our parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. God disciplines his true children. He he, he calls them out. He even allows us go through trials and points out sometimes very painful weaknesses that we have. But it's not for no purpose. No, God has a reason to do it. It's so that we might look more like him. God is working in us. God does this with us. Have you ever been frustrated because of how long God is calling you to wait? been waiting and waiting and praying and praying and the response seems to always be wait. And you think, God, why are you making me wait this long? God, why are you letting me go through this again and again? Maybe God is actually teaching you what true patience, what true reliance on him looks like. God lets us go through that because he loves us. He lets us go through those painful trials, not because the pain is good, but because he knows it's going to produce a holiness in us. See, that's what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to look for. And so Jesus says, be zealous. Because of that, be zealous in your faith. And I know that's kind of a weird word, isn't it? We don't often talk about zeal or being a zealot or something like that. In fact, usually when we talk about that, it has a pretty negative connotation, right? Like some religious, violent extremist. And we're like, okay, don't don't really want to do that. And yet, that's kind of what's being talked about here. Not not the violent, not all that stuff. but, But that idea of being singularly devoted to a particular cause. See, that's what zeal looks like. That is what the Christian life ought to look like. We are zealous for what is good and are not looking to compromise. We are to be zealous for knowing God, for knowing Jesus, for uh, sharing what he has done. See, that's what Jesus calls this distracted church to do. 
be zealous for good. Be zealous for your faith. Be zealous for Jesus. And it's the call for us as well. So are, are we zealous Christians? If I can be honest, I think sometimes we're moderate Christians. We're moderate Christians, right? We, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, we'll, we'll sing about him. But it's not like it's going to change our whole lives. It's not like we're going to actually shift things in our lives, our, our habits, our everyday routines. No, 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 that, that would be too radical. I'm not going to actually share what I believe. That would be far too radical. I'm not going to let it make an impact on, on how or why I do what I do. That would be far too radical. At some point, we have to ask ourselves, have we become blind along the way? Have we focused on the wrong thing? Have we lost perspective of what Jesus calls us to be? Calls us to be zealous for him because he disciplines, he rebukes us. Because he loves us, let us be zealous with our entire lives, our minds, our hearts, our intellect, our emotions, our volition, everything working together for Jesus Christ that we might know him more, that our lives might look like him more, that others might know him more. Jesus calls us to be zealous for good. Hebrews 12 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive after, be zealous for holiness, why? Because without it, we will not see the Lord. Here's the truth. There's no such thing as moderate Christians. To follow Jesus is to be zealous for him. So what happens if we approach this car crash and we find out that instead of us coming as the police officer, we're actually showing up as one of the crash? What if as we start looking at this church, it's starting to describe more of our life than we might like to really think? What if we're not really that zealous? What if we're not really, what if we're far more moderate, lukewarm kind of category than anything else? What if we're nowhere near? What do we do with that? Jesus says, be zealous and repent. See, Jesus knows where our heart is at. Jesus knows how often we have failed, how often we have missed the mark, how often we have messed up and ended up in that crash. He knows how often we have hurt others, have hurt ourselves, have ignored God, and yet the call is still repent. Confess your sin. Turn back to him. Literally, that's what repenting is. It's turning back away from our sins and turning towards God. See, this has been the call of nearly every single one of these letters. It's to the church, repent, turn back to God, turn back to him. So let us hear that message and repent. But, but I don't know about you, I, I have definitely been at a point in my life where, where I just thought to myself, there's no way I can. How can I possibly repent? I have gone down this road so far at this point. I am so far away from God. I, I can't even turn back. What am I supposed to do then? Verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, when Jesus calls the church to repent, he is not far off. He is not far away. He's at the door knocking. Question is, will you turn to him? Will you turn to Jesus, to the one who can offer you what is truly valuable, that will last beyond what we can do? We're not self-made people. We're not self-made Christians. But the good news is that what we couldn't do, Jesus did for us. Though we had sinned, though we had wandered far away from God, and the Bible even tells us the punishment for our sin was death, Jesus actually came and he died in our place. He took that punishment on our behalf so that anyone who would turn to him, who would repent of their sins, trust in him, they would be saved. Anyone who hears that knock and opens the door. So will you repent? Will you turn from your sin and follow after Jesus? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he first starts preaching, this is what he says, Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's been part of Jesus' message from the very beginning. Turn back to me. Do you want to know why? Because the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus continues on in verse 21. He says, the one who conquers, the one who repents, the one who trusts in me, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Why? Why should we repent and turn to him? Because there is a great reward that is promised for those who do. For those who repent, who trust in Jesus, they will sit with him on the throne of heaven. They will gain far more than earthly wealth. We will get far greater than anything our money could ever buy. We will gain eternal life with God. Sit with him, eat with him, have fellowship with God, with no longer our sins hanging over us, no longer with guilt and shame and fear and despair gnawing at the pit of our stomach. We will sit and eat with God in peace and joy and fellowship with him forever. So verse 22, last verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is how every single one of these letters has ended. It's a call to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, not, not, not just to this church 2,000 years ago, but to us here today, what the Holy Spirit has been saying to us. So have you heard the call, repent of your sins? Have you heard the call to turn away from trusting in what you can do? To trust in him fully? Have you heard the call to follow after Jesus zealously, fixated on what he has done? Colossians 3 puts it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. One of the things I've loved about working through this book of Revelation 
It's just how much it has lifted me from thinking about all the stuff here on earth and has lifted me to thinking about what Jesus is doing in heaven. That's where we are called to set our minds, not, not on what we can accomplish, not on what we can you know, do in our own strength, but on what Jesus has done and what we can do with him for all of eternity. That we can actually be with him on his throne. Will you hear what the Spirit says to us? Let us zealously seek after that true spiritual wealth as we turn every day to follow Jesus again and again. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that there have been many times that we have not followed after you. Lord, there have been many times when we have not zealously fixed our eyes on you, that we have trusted more in what we can accomplish in our own hands than what you have done for us. Father, I pray, forgive us for our sins. Father, I pray, would we trust in you wholly, that we can be right with God because of what you have done. Lord, fix our eyes on that. Lord, work in us that we would long to see you made known in our lives and in the lives of those around us, continually work in us that we would look more like you. Father, we repent of our sins and we turn to you. Father, grant us a zeal for your name, a zeal for what is good, and a zeal for what you have done. We ask these things in your name. Amen.